0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي Alhamdulillah, last week we discussed very important uh, categories of verses of the Qur'an. The first we said was the muhkam, and the second was the mutashabih. And we went into detail about explaining what is the meaning of muhkam. Muhkam are those verses which are explicit and clear in their meaning, and the mutashabih are those verses which have, in, uh, in the Arabic language, they possess ambiguity in their meaning. And in order for one to understand the meaning of those words, it needs to be cross-referenced and referred to the muhkam, which is the foundational verses of the Qur'an. And this is how we understand our belief with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is another point, maybe I just can continue elaborating on what we were discussing last week. Where we said, like uh, the verses in which there seems to be a description of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in a physical way. The word wajh is used, which could be translated as face. Or the word yad is used, which could be translated as hand. But the muhkam, the explicit verses of the Quran explain to us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like Surah Ikhlas, doesn't have anything which resembles him, he doesn't resemble his creation in any way. So therefore we do not translate those verses literally. We don't say the face of Allah and mean a physical face. We do not say the hand of Allah and mean a physical hand. But we see what is allowed in the Arabic language. Like these particular words have got multiple meanings in the Arabic language. So whichever meaning is suitable to the, the grandeur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is is it it is in, it's compatible with the muhkam and the foundational verses, that will be a meaning which should be allowed. So we will bring iman in the word which was revealed in the Quran but we will know it's not, a, it's not really a physical uh, attribution to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second important point is with regards to understanding what is the correct belief about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One is that you shouldn't make this mistake and confuse between muhkam and mutashabih. The 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 very important thing is for us to understand that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. These three words I used last week. Allah is free from direction and space, and He is free from need. He doesn't have any need for time, space, and direction. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has created these things. So, uh, generally, I I, normally am apprehensive to mention this in in a general lesson, but I feel the need to mention it because it is something which is commonly. Brought up in our circles, and sometimes we don't, uh, 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 we are not aware of what the correct response should be. So there are some people in the Ummah who confuse the general masses by posing the question of where is Allah. Okay, they, they pose this question, and if you travel sometimes to Arab countries, you will find and say, where is Allah? And that is a question which we are not encouraged to be asking because that question doesn't apply to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Said Ali radiAllahu anh, said, man al ain la yuqalu anhu ain. That being who has created direction and where and when, the word where doesn't apply to him. We don't ask where he is. So when our common Muslim brothers and sisters are confronted with this type of question, then they say, to the best of their ability, what they, what we understand is that you, you cannot hide from Allah. Everything you do is in the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So the best way of expressing this in Allah is everywhere, which academically is not a correct answer, because everywhere means in every place and places a creation of Allah and Allah is free from being restricted to his creation but what they want to say is that you cannot hide from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will know whatever you are doing even if you do it in seclusion in a dark place, in secrecy but um, the best way would just be to keep yourself based on the muhkam those verses which are clear and we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from time Allah is free from any place Allah is free from having any resemblance to his creation. Allah was, subhanahu wa ta'ala, was in existence before he created place. He was in existence before he created the arsh. And after he created the arsh, he didn't change. He's still perfect as he was, and he will always be perfect with his attributes and sifat. So this is the foundational understanding based on these two types of verses. There's another type of, of discussion with regards to the ayat in the Quran, which we will touch on today, inshallah. And that is called naskh, The aspect of abrogation of Of the verses of the Qur'an So linguistically It means to remove or to copy There are many meanings to the word And is based on a verse of the Qur'an Which we will discuss as we go along Inshallah So abrogation In Sharia it means to repeal Cancel a previous legal ruling And replace it with a different one So this is something very important The Yahud and a sect amongst the previous Muslims, known as the Mu'tazila, the Mu'tazilites, they emerged in the second century of uh, of Hijrah, and uh, they were very, very strong rationalists. And they were the people that initially perhaps one could say that they commenced off sincerely with the intention of benefiting deen, but progressing unbridled in the intellectual uh, efforts rendered them... Uh, a danger to deen Because now they started subjecting The text of sharia Of Quran and hadith To the intellect Because what happened was In the early stages of Islam I'm digressing again now I'm just seeing I'm seeing your interest And I'm just digressing So forgive me The In the early stages of Islam It was sufficient to tell a Muslim Qala Allah, qala rasul Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said this Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam It's enough Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu Was entering the masjid And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Said Ijlisu Sit down and he was addressing the people in the masjid, but he heard the words, sit down, and he sat at the door. So that was sufficient for the Muslims of that time. If Rasulullah said something, that was enough. But going along in the Khilafah of Sayyidina Umar and Sayyidina Uthman's time, Islam was now spreading to those lands in which they had access to people from different civilizations. We had people who were exposed to Greek philosophy, those who were exposed to the Chinese type of philosophy. And these are all civilizations who had their own concept and ideology with regards to the, the being worthy of worship that they perceived to be the being worthy of worship and how they, they described those particular beings, whether it be idols or whether it be um, constellations in the, in the sky of the universe that they regarded to be effective in their lives. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared this ummah in such a way that it is going to face all the challenges as they go along. So, now, when the Sahaba reached the Iraq, this was now the, 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 the center of the world where you had East and West merging. And you had everybody presenting their uh, intellectual argumentation about what they believe. And now they were, okay, you're Muslim, so what is your belief? Now, your answer of Allah and Qalar Rasul is not sufficient. Because a person who's coming with a philosophical question and he's got an academic sequence of presenting his argument, and he's not a Muslim. So your textual proof would not be sufficient to convince him of your argument. You need to take similar steps. If a person is challenging you, in table tennis, you can't say, I'll I'll play you chess, I'll beat you in chess. You need to take up the challenge of whatever the challenge is. So this is when... The rational type of development started in the Ummah. So, the intention was to be able to explain to those people who are not well versed or not convinced of the textual belief and, and creed of the Muslimin that there is a proper sequence of understanding our belief, which, common, which makes sense to the common person also. It's not something beyond the intellect of a human being. And this is how it started. And many of the, 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 the ulama of Ahlul sunnah felt, you know, it's better we don't get too much involved in this and, and because it was developing and you needed to like, learn what was the methodology of argumentation, of presenting your argument. And there's very few people in the ummah who really excelled into going to the depths of philosophy and understanding how the argumentation is made and came out unscathed. Among them is Imam Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali, the famous uh, scholar of Ahlul sunnah he went to the depths of, of philosophy to, to learn what is their methodology and then use a methodology which, is, which coincides with sharia to be able to express the answers that we need to give to those people who, who need to understand whatever they want to about Islam. And then the first time he studied and he, he wrote a book called Maqasid al The Objectives of the Philosophers. What, what is their methodology? How do they come to their conclusions? And then thereafter, he wrote another book called *Tahafutul Falasifa*, the incoherence of the of the philosophers. In other words, where they're making mistakes, where they 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 starting um, the argument perhaps with one correct statement, but the mistake is in the second statement, so the conclusion is wrong. So rectifying what they were misunderstanding, and and he was an Imam of Hadith, he was an Imam of of uh, of Tasawwuf of of spirituality. Uh, In fact. Uh, Imam Abu Hassan al-Shadili, a very famous uh, scholar, was from Algeria, Tunisia. And uh, he once he saw a dream, it was the day of Qiyamah. And he saw all the Anbiya, alayhimu, salatu was salam. And he saw Sayyidina Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa as well. So he said there was a discussion between Sayyidina Musa, alayhi sallam, and Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Musa, alayhi sallam, ...said to Rasulullah is it true that you, that, uh, uh, you said something to the effect that uh, the, the scholars of your ummah resemble the prophets of the Bani Israel? Obviously not in, you can't be equal to a Nabi of Allah, they are maasum and they are infallible and they are the greatest of the creation of Allah. But the scholars, the true scholars, not sinful and weakling people like us, and now we have the scholars of the, the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een, those who had true knowledge of, of Sharia... Uh, that they resemble in other words they, they make similar efforts which resemble the efforts of the prophets trying to work on people and uh, supporting people and assisting them in their spiritual upliftment and linking them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did you say something like that so Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said yes so he said well show me one person like that so Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said where's Abu Hamid al-Ghazali so Imam al-Ghazali came forward and uh, he, he was introduced to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam so said Musa salam asked him, "What is your name?" So he said, "He said his name and his father's name and his grandfather's name." So he, he started mentioning his whole lineage up to where he could remember. So Musa salam said to him, "That uh, I only asked your name. Why are you giving me all the details of your you know your ancestry?" So. Imam al Ghazali turned to Rasulullah and smiled and asked, Do you give me permission to answer? Because you're not allowed to retort or be disrespectful to a Nabi of Allah, you lose your iman, it's it's dangerous to you, detrimental to your iman. So he, he asked permission, can I respond? And he was given permission. So he said, Oh Nabi of Allah oh, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you your first revelation, he said, Ma tilka ya musa. Musa, what is what's in your in your right hand? And you said, هي that it is my staff I lean upon it I support myself with it وأهش بها على and I also break leaves and I prepare whatever I need to feed my animals ولي فيها مآرب أخرى and I've got lots of other tasks and chores that I can do with the staff so I said أَنَّى of Allah, I know that the only reason you prolonged your speech was out of the love you had for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this opportunity that you have been blessed with to reply to a question posed to you by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is why you lengthen your question. What more fortune can there be for a person like me to be honored with speaking to Kalimullah, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. So my intention was not to be boastful or show you something that you don't know, but it was more to prolong this moment of enjoyment and honor that Allah has blessed me with to be able to be in your company. So Musa alayhi salam said to Rasulullah sallallahu Alaihi definitely the, the ulama of your ummah, they resemble, in other words, they emulate the ways of the Anbiya a.s. So <clears throat> al-ghazali rahimahullah, so this, this was the type of argumentation that now they were able to present. But the Mu'tazila, this group, they went further to the extent that now the intellectual presentation of their arguments, according to them now, depended on something which only makes sense to them. If it makes sense to them, they're going to accept it, even if it comes from the Qur'an or the hadith. If it doesn't make sense, they will not accept it. And this became a problem. And this is why the fourth imam, Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, he opposed them in this particular approach, that you cannot reject textual evidence upon which our Iman is based. It's because you merely cannot understand. A few decades ago, if you told somebody that, People will be speaking and communicating with one another from one country to another seeing them presently what they are doing or Communicating without any wires in between which are visible They would have thought it's something impossible, And so many things now are present which would have been regarded to be an impossibility in the past so Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal opposed this particular type of... And he, he said, I do not agree with placing your intellect... Yes, your intellect and your mind has been bl- given to you as a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It supports that which has been given by Allah. It's a support and it's a, it's, it testifies to the authenticity of what was presented to you. But it's not the judge over what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has given us. <clears throat> so, uh, amongst the, the Mu'tazila they, they adopted this objection against this concept of naskh and abrogation. They say that if a verse is abrogated, billah, then it means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he, he gave an instruction, there's a command, and then he realized, okay, that's not the right command now, so I'm changing my mind, billah, and I'm giving another command, which is absolutely incorrect, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond making mistakes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond, this in Arabic is called al-badaa, and very strangely, the Ithna Ashari Shia, the twelve the 12 sect of the Shia, this is one. Some of their scholars also have this particular ideology uh, of bada that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can change His mind. You know, we say the ilm of Allah, all the attributes of Allah are perfect. Like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, in His essence and His being, He is beginningless and endless. He is complete and perfect in His being and His attributes. Uh, there is nothing which is Defective in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah's knowledge is perfect from beginning to end it's not increasing and decreasing And there are attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which every Muslim has to know I think I touched on this previously it's the knowledge of Allah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in existence he is, He's all seeing he's all hearing these are basic things which we have to so the knowledge of Allah it doesn't increase and decrease It's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he thought something would happen and Something else happens. That's an impossible. That's an intellectual impossibility. And this is, okay, let's just carry on. <clears throat> Sometimes people say uh, that uh, dua changes taqdeer. This is also uh, an inaccurate statement to make. When we say taqdeer, taqdeer means that which is linked to the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The knowledge of Allah is perfect. Okay, And what could be a correct understanding of that particular statement that uh, dua can change your, your destiny, is not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his beginningless and permanent and perfect knowledge knew that this is going to happen and then this person decided to make dua and now it changed. It's not like that. It's, that's impossible. But in terms of what we see things in this world of cause and effect, a person seemed to have been heading in a particular direction and Allah gave him the ability to make dua through the barakah of the dua, in this world, it seemed as if that was, the, through the blessings of that dua, Allah saved him from what is going to happen. But that's how we see things in our world as we perceive it, which is relative to our condition, because things happen in the environment in which we are. We are on the earth, gravity pulls us down. If we go to the moon, it's, it's, it's different. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in his perfect knowledge, knew from the beginning that this person... He's going to do this and he'll make du'a and through the barakah of his du'a. So in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nothing changes. So this is something very important which is linked to understanding the, the aqidah, the, the ilm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything minute, and uh, large and small is in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's nothing hidden from the, of the ilm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says he knows what is in the, in the oceans and in the, on, on the earth. As we're sitting now, there might be a leaf falling off a tree. Allah knows each and every leaf which is falling off each and every tree, not only in South Africa in the whole world. If there is a mustard seed or an atom which is moving, Allah knows full where it is moving, what is he's in full control of his entire creation. Unlike when we invent or manufacture things, the thing we, pre- we prepare, it leaves our control. So you, you, if you manufactured a car and you, you designed it, once you've designed it, it goes to the person who purchased it. It's no longer in your control. The only thing which is linked to you is perhaps the badge and the name. But by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what he has created, is fully in the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this uh, idea that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can change his mind is totally contrary to the teachings of uh, Ahlul Sunnah, uh, of the, the mainstream of the, of the Muslim world. So the objection... Is based on this misunderstanding that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse and now gives you another verse It means that uh, he he made a mistake and he wasn't sure this is why he changed the verse Whereas that's not the the reason The reason is actually that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses and the injunctions based on the needs of people So when they develop to a particular state And this is going to be easily understood Even a a child can understand that a patient is completely uh, His immune system is finished so the doctor is giving him a particular type of medication to build him up to a, to a point where he is able to now become strong enough to go for the operation which he requires. The ultimate is that. But if somebody says, no, but this guy needs an operation, why is the doctor giving him medication? So then the specialist will tell you that there's a procedure in which uh, this doctor tries to build the, the patient up to a standard in which he is able to bear the difficulty that he needs to endure during the operation. So similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his hikmah knows when is the right time to give a particular injunction. And when people have reached that state, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at the time of revelation we're talking about, obviously now the Ahkam are all revealed, but this is where the, 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 the point or the concept of abrogation comes. Why was there a need for it? Because now people are, prepared, are ready now to, to receive the next instruction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also, um, with regards to nasq, we say a clarification at the end of a certain legal ruling, which was already known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pre-eternally. So Allah knows exactly what's the outcome, what's the final injunction. That, for example, um, intoxicants will be haram. It's in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the sahaba were people who were so exposed to it, that they were built up to the point where now when the final instruction comes, they were able to leave it completely. So it looks like a replacement from our perspective, but it's merely a clarification from the divine perspective of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah says, do not perform, uh, there's benefit and there's harm in, in, in intoxicants. And then He says that uh, do not perform salah in the state of being intoxicated. So somebody says, but now there it says there's benefit and harm. And here He says, don't do it while you're in salah. And then the next verse says, it's completely prohibited and forbidden. So why is there this type of uh, you know, outward contradiction in the mind of the person from an out, uh, from external glance? The actual reason is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows exactly where the injunction is heading. But as, a, as an individual, you are not aware of what is in the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We, the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not within our grasp. It's not something we can comprehend. So, the legal rulings gradually were given. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in his pre-eternal knowledge, knew what is the desired, the final hukam which will last the day of Qiyamah. And from our perspective, it seems, okay, that was first and now this is the second But it was actually the hikmah and the wisdom behind it is to be able to have people prepared to receive the final instruction. This word mentioned in the Qur'an, and why why I presented it in this way is for us to to see that that this particular concept is mentioned clearly in the Qur'an. So it it would go against anything mentioned by, for example, the Shia or non-Muslim objecting. And saying that, you know, there's no such a thing that how can your, your Lord make a mistake? He's revealing one verse here, and he's revealing another verse here. So this is a means of removing that doubt, and we feel confident that we know. Yes, there's a different verse there, there's a different verse there. But there's a, there's a sequence, there's a timeline. It wasn't revealed all at once, that you can say, okay, all these verses are revealed at one time, and they're contradicting one another. No, there's a timeline. This was at a particular stage. We know when it was revealed. This was the, the mindset of the people at that time. And then they, they matured and they went to the next level and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the next instruction. So this verse, manan sakh min ayatin, the meaning of it is, we do not abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted, he would just remove the a verse or hukm and injunction from the heart and mind of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he would not recite it any longer and that would just be like, a, it's like the file deleted and there's so many beautiful things in, in the life of Rasulullah which shows us how and sometimes I think it's because of the fact that Rasulullah is khatamun Nabiyin, he's the nabi to come to the day of qiyam and every nabi when he came he came with a miracle related to his era and his, and his nation Musa alayhi salam came, they were magicians so his miracle seemed to be and it dominated the, the magic of the magicians and they knew that his wasn't magic it was a miracle. It made them unable to challenge. Similarly, Rasulullah his ummah was going to be the ummah of the age of information and technology and all these things of, of discoveries of the future till before Qiyamah. And Allah subhanahu wa taala gave him Mi'raj to show how he can travel from Masjidul Haram to Masjidul Aqsa before the Mi'raj. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa chest was opened. The sahaba said that we notice if you look carefully on the blessed chest of Rasulullah. Sallallahu wa sallam, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa didn't have a hairy chest. He had a very broad chest and he had a thin line of hair running down just till his navel. So the sahaba said, if you look carefully, you would see like needle holes on the chest of Rasulullah, sallallahu wa where his chest was opened the night of Mi'araj and his heart was, was was washed with Zamzam and placed back. In hadith it is mentioned. And they want me to speak on mi'araj and I'm telling you all the information now already. Anyway, we we'll repeat it, inshallah. We're talking about Rasulullah, you can talk your whole life about the same thing. The hadith it is mentioned that Rasulullah's heart was placed in a utensil of ice. Doctors, when they do a transplant or they need to move, they keep it in in ice. So even the, the miracles of Rasulullah show you that his nubuwa was still a day of qiyamah. Fast modes of transportation, all right? The Buraq that Rasulullah sallallahu used from Masjid al Haram to Masjid Aqsa. Who would have thought? When he, in fact, when he came back from Mi'raj and he told the Quraysh that I went to Masjid al Aqsa and I travelled by night, and they said, "Oh, what are you talking about?" They said, well, "Okay, we travelled to uh, Al Quds. Describe to us the Masjid Aqsa." Now, if Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam travelled there, it doesn't mean he knows exactly. If you ask us, we in this Masjid. Ankarashad Rashad, in this masjid every day. If somebody asks Ankur Rashad, how many pillars in the masjid it. We don't know, right? Although we hear all the time. So they ask Rasulullah alaihi that's a ridiculous question. Okay, describe to us the masjid. And the hadith it is mentioned, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Masjid al-Aqsa appear in front of Rasulullah in a three-dimensional way. It was moving. So as it's moving, he's saying, okay, it's got a window on the east side, it's got a window on the left-hand side, it's got so many pillars. Isn't that something that we that science tells us is possible? Now you can have a three-dimensional thing. A person can be seeming to be standing in front of you, and he's not really standing there. And they just superimposed his image there. And this happened to Rasulullah sallallahu at that time already, because his messages for the ummah till the day of qiyamah. So all those things which are related to us, were shown to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi So if Allah subhanahu wa taala wanted to remove something from uh, the heart of Rasulullah so uh, The hukum is no longer. The the instruction is no longer applicable. Allah would do so. It is the will of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Because Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam didn't have the right to to say anything from his side. in illa wahyu yuha ma yantiqu anil hawa. He was not speaking from his from his desires, but it was wahy from Allah subhanahu wa taala. And uh, he says, uh, so the meaning of this verse: We do not abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten, except that we bring forth one better or similar to it. In other words. There will be another verse or another injunction similar to the one which is now applicable to the, to the need of uh, the people which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills. Another verse in the 14th of Jews, Allah says, And when we substitute a verse in place of a verse. So that tells you that one verse can come in place of, of another verse. And Allah is most knowing. I'm not going to read the entire translation, we'll continue. How do we know which, which one comes first or second? So there are certain signs the ulama have given. The first is either context of the ayah itself. So one tells you um, a particular thing, and you can see the context of the next verse. Is in, it is cancelling that particular point which was mentioned in the first. For example, uh, the abrogating verse comes right after. So there is an example in Surah uh, Suratul mujadala in the 28th Jews, the first surah of the 28th Jews, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructed the Sahaba radiallahu anhu that, Ya ayyuha amanu, إذا na jaitumu rasool, when you're going to have a secret meeting, a private consultation with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, فَقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيْنَ جَوَاكُمْ then give a charity to a poor person, give some sadaqah uh, in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to a poor person, then you go. That is now the instruction of Allah. And the next verse. It was a bit difficult for you to, to give your sadaqah before going to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So تفعلوا, if you do not do so, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pardoned that. In other words, it's no longer applicable. Your normal good deeds of iqamatu salah and zakah uh, and ita'ah and obedience to Allah and His Rasul, that will be sufficient, which means that the, the verse previous to that, uh, instructed people to give sadaqah. In fact, some ulama say only one person made amal on this and also Ali, when he heard the verse Rasulullah wasallam said this verse was revealed, he gave sadaqah quickly and then after a little while that verse was abrogated by the, by, by the next verse. So, so the, you can see the, the context of the next verse tells you that the hukam which was given now previously, Allah has made it easier for you and you are no longer bound or obliged to, to give that particular uh, sadaqah. The second way to know which um, is the abrogating verse and which verse has been abrogated is we know from ijma' of the sahaba. Ijma' const- is a word we, we hear often. What does ijma' mean? That the sahaba and the jurists of the, of the ummah, they, they have uniformity and they're unanimous on a particular view. Like Imam al rahimahullah says, there's ijma' on 20 rakats of Salat al tarawih Okay, 20 rakats of Salat al tarawih There's Ijma'a consensus And ijma is one of the proofs of Sharia So if you need to establish any, any ruling in Sharia The first place to search for a proof is the Quran The second is the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And Sunnah comprises of his speech, his utterance His action And his endorsing of an action done in front of him uh, Without him prohibiting it So somebody does something in front of him Sayyidina Bilal, radiallahu anh, added As-salatu khairu min an he endorsed it. He said, that's fine. Okay, uh, The person did Rabbana lakal hamd hamdan kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fi Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam endorsed it. So Endows it, that becomes part of the, the sunnah. And the third is ijma' Ijma' means the consensus of the Sahaba, radiallahu anh, like we discussed the ijma' of the Sahaba in the compilation and the preparation of the, the, the text of the Quran and also the copies in the time of Sayyidina Uthman, radiallahu an and Prior to that, in the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr as Siddiq. So, that is ijma', that is a proof of sharia. Now, the, you get people who, who, who reject the concept of ijma'. They say, no, no, only Quran and Sunnah. Imam al Shafi'i, rahimahullah. Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam, all of them accept the concept of ijma'. This is with unanimity of the four jurists of Islam. Somebody asked Imam al Shafi'i, uh, Have you ever come across the proof in the Quran of ijma'? So, Imam al Shafi'i, said, I recited the Qur'an four times. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed me the verse in which the proof of ijma' is. That person who causes harm to the Rasul of Allah, sallallahu After guidance has become manifest and evident to him, and he follows a way other than the way of the believers in the time of Rasulullah, which is the Sahaba. So he follows a way contrary to the way which has been established with unanimity by the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. نُوَلِّهِ We'll leave him to his own affairs. And we'll enter him into the fire of Jahannam. So the, the warning of going to Jahannam for somebody who goes against something which has been endorsed by the Mu'mineen, the Sahaba ﷺ, is the proof that there is some shari'i basis to the existence of Ijma, which is the view of the Sahaba. Then the the third point here of how uh, how do we know which comes first or second from a hadith. So some Sahabi would mention that this verse came after this verse. It was revealed in this particular year, etc. So that clarifies which is the first and which is the abrogating verse. There are some differences between the earlier and the, and the latter day scholars with regards to um, naskh and abrogation. Earlier scholars had a very broad definition of naskh. So, when you say broad definition, it means that sometimes there's a verse which is discussing something. For example, uh, This is one verse do not marry mushrikat. Those women who ascribe partners unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that would include all those people who are worshipping idols, even uh, the Nasara, uh, because saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has got uh, a son or is part of a trinity is ascribing a partner unto Allah and it means that he has got somebody who shares his attributes with him, which is shirk. Um, Then there's another verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions. The permissibility of of nikah to ahlul kitab. Okay. So that second verse, so the the earlier scholars would say that um, that abrogated the first verse. The first verse said all the mushrikat are not permissible and the second verse abrogated it which means the ahlul kitab amongst them are permissible so that first verse is. So it was, this was the, the understanding. The later scholars said, no, it's not necessary for us to categorize this as an abrogation, but mere, it's merely a clarification, because the first verse was a bit general, which included all types of, of uh, mushrikat, and the second verse just clarified that those mushrikat who are from Ahlul Kitab, there would be permissibility. Now, I don't want to go into that topic now, because that's also... You see, that one is a permissibility, and one, some, certain things are permissible, but not preferable. Like our respected Imam Qari Yusuf was mentioning now after Maghrib, that the aura and the nakedness, the private parts of a man, is from navel to knee. Which means if you make a salah with that type of pants, the salah is valid. It's permissible. But is it recommended and preferable? No. What is recommended is that you ensure that you cover your entire body with respectful clothes, which is understood to be good clothes in the time that we are living in. And that's fine. That, that would be totally acceptable. But now somebody says, No, but you said that this is the nakedness. We say that's the, the limits are mentioned, and we are taught not to go close to the limits. Uh, and this is why um, Rasulullah said that halal ubayin, wal-haram ubayin. Halal is completely clear, haram is also clear. And they are, they, are, uh, they are confusing things or in between gray areas. And he said, Stay away from that. And he gives an example, a similitude. It's like that shepherd who takes his flock and he grazes them on the government land, which is prohibited. There's no access allowed there. But he goes to just the boundary. So it's very easy for some part of his flock to step over that limit and he will be prosecuted. So similarly... Uh, when sharia gives you the limits that okay this is the limit of your nakedness it doesn't mean that that's what you should only do but this is just a limit you should obviously uh, do that which is recommended in sharia and the same thing applies to this particular ruling that we discussed now okay here we have I didn't have time to put the translation here this is a verse in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that carry and blood has been prohibited for your consumption. Dumb is blood, maita is something which is dead, it wasn't slaughtered. There isn't the hadith, Rawahu Ahmad ibn Majah, Imam Ahmad ibn Majah has mentioned a hadith of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Two types of dead things are allowed for us: a samak wal jarad, fish and locust. Which means, in Malawi, you get Ali locust you get mashallah in the, in, uh, the arab countries it's a, it's a delicacy a locust and if you if you find it a bit awkward they say it looks like prawns so i don't know <laughs> okay so samak like the story of the sahaba radiallahu anhum when the, the rations ran out and the provisions was exhausted allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided from the amber fish so there's no need to slaughter it it's not something which you require to to slaughter there's no dhabiha. it's not like an animal which needs to be slaughtered Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it alive on, obviously on condition that it, it, it hasn't gone off in such a way which is harmful because it's impermissible for a person to consume anything which is which is harmful so here the words of Rasulullah which is also wahi explains that so some would look at this as an abrogation that here the verse says that something which is dead uh, is haram and the hadith says that these two things which i did are halal but in reality the ulama say no this is not actually abrogation this is a clarification of um, the 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 things which are generally understood to be dead this is something that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made halal this doesn't fall under the same category of what is referred to in the in the verse and this is uh, the verse which i mentioned in the beginning of of giving some sadaqa when speaking to rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and this is the second verse. Ashfaqatum an tuqaddimu. Have you feared to present before your consultation charities? Uh, then, when, when you do not, and Allah has forgiven you, then at least establish prayer and give zakah and obey Allah and His Messenger. And Allah is acquainted with what you do. Allah uh, This is another example, a bequest for inheritors. So, this verse states prescribe for you the meaning of the verse. The verse is in Arabic, and the meaning of the verse is in English. The verse is not in English. This is an uh, important thing. Uh, people say, oh, I'm reading the English Quran. That's not the Quran. The Quran is in Arabic. Quranan Arabiyyah. Yes, you're reading the translation or the meaning of the Quran. That's the translation. It's not the Quran. And this is why you can touch that without wudu. Uh, and not the text of the Quran. Without wudu. So, prescribe for you when death approaches. كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَكُمُ الْمَوْتِ if he leaves wealth Is that he should make a wasiyah Wasiyah is a bequest for the parents And near relatives So this verse At that time the instruction was That you could make a bequest for your parents Then thereafter Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed The entire The entire Masail of Of inheritance In the fourth juz Of surah An-nisa In detail Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains li that if there's brothers and sisters, then the male gets double the share of, of the sisters. And um, feminists and uh, the gender equality lobby, they can say what they want to, but there's an explanation to this, and there is a context in which needs to be understood. So we shouldn't reject anything which is mentioned in the Quran. It becomes detrimental to our iman. If there are daughters, for example, no sons, only daughters, um, two or more, then they get two-thirds of the entire estate if it's one daughter she gets half of the estate without, if there's no brother to her I'm just rushing through the translation quickly how much time do we have? so if both parents are alive then they would get one sixth if he has got offspring if the, if the deceased person has got offspring then his parents would get one sixth each if he's got a son so this, all the details I mentioned here. So this particular verse now, it cancels out the instruction of making a bequest. So Rasulullah wasallam thereafter taught us that a bequest you can make to anyone besides the heirs that have been stipulated in these verses. So somebody has uh, got uh, his children and uh, parents. The, 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 uh, his will has already been specified in the Quran. You can't make any changes to that. Yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given... Um, the and you see the hadith at the bottom. There is no bequest for an heir. The Messenger of Allah said. So the first verse shows you that you can make a bequest for your parents, who's an heir, or some other relative who might be an heir. But this verse now clarifies; it cancels out and abrogates the initial instruction um, that was to get people used to the fact that Islam emphasizes taking care of your parents and your family members which was something not so common amongst the people of Jahiliyyah. They were burying their daughters alive, then giving them a share of the estate was something beyond their imagination. So first, the instruction is given for them that you need to take care of your family members and your parents, make a request for them when you die. And now once they're used to that, okay, Sharia is, is there to make us look after one another, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the details, that it's, it's like a person saying, can I give my, my mother Zakat, brother? You're supposed to be looking after her. You're thinking of giving your mother zakah. You're not supposed to be asking a question like that. So similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, these people, they get a part of your estate, whether you like it or not. There's no business of making a bequest for them. A bequest, yeah, you make from one third of your estate. You can make a bequest for a masjid or for some orphans or for some madrasa or for some project or some poor people. You can make a bequest for whoever you want to, any strangers. But this verse, it would be the abrogating verse, which clarifies... That. Are we past the time of Adhan? Insha'Allah we'll continue. If Allah gives us tawfiq, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept and give us a true understanding of the ahkam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and give us beneficial knowledge and give us a tawfiq to practice on what we have learned. Wa akhiru alamin.